that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention. That as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. I woke early this morning, like 2.30 a.m. early. Yeah. My eyes opened and there was no coaxing them back into sleep. The noise of the days behind me and of the days ahead was simply too great to allow sleep to return. The cacophony rattling through my head was of elections and pandemics, friends who have lost loved ones, family and friends dealing with serious health issues, relationships between people I love dearly under deep strain. I mean, I could go on, but no one really wants to hear of my insomnia. I mean, we all have our insomnias, right? And there was one thing for me that kept floating above this den of activity. I am supposed to sit on a panel at Belmont University tomorrow and speak to the topic, Finding Hope Amidst the Hate. Yeah, I know. Quite frankly, I've found hope to be sort of elusive these days. I mean, every time I think 2020 has given us all it can give us to endure, 2020 says, hold my beer. So, I got out of bed, and I showered, and I sat down here at my desk, and I listened to this sermon, Stalking the Snow Leopard, by Dr. Larry Taylor. This morning we're joined by two Old Testament prophets who seem to have very different messages for us. First, the prophet Isaiah. Truly thou art a God who hidest thyself. And second, Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. At the beginning of his story, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, Ernest Hemingway noted that Kilimanjaro is a snow-covered mountain that rises more than 19,000 feet above the shimmering plains of Africa. The western, <clears throat> the western summit of the mountain is called by the local Maasai people the House of God. And close to the western summit, there is the dried and frozen carcass of a leopard. No one has ever explained what the leopard was seeking at that altitude. 
So many of the world's great stories are about seeking and journey. The hero of a thousand faces ventures forth, said Joseph Campbell, in search. <clears throat> Jason seeks the golden fleece, Lancelot the holy grail, and Father Abraham the land that God would show him. <clears throat> Inman longs for the cold mountain of his childhood. Dorothy seeks Kansas and Auntie M. And the Jodes in Steinbeck's novel leave the choking dust of Oklahoma to seek the golden shores of California. The Hebrew children search for the land that flows with milk and honey and for the elusive God who dwells there. In September of 1973, Peter Matheson set out on a journey to the Crystal Mountain in the land of Dalpo on the Tibetan Plateau high in the Himalayas. He was traveling in the company of George Shaler, a zoologist who was leading the expedition to Nepal, ostensibly to study the Himalayan blue sheep. Shaler wanted <clears throat> to understand better the migratory habits of these animals, which are actually more like goats. Now, while this was a scientific investigation of reputable merit in itself, it carried with it another possibility. Where there are blue sheep, there is also the rarest and most beautiful of the great cats, the snow leopard. At the time of the expedition, only two Westerners had ever laid eyes on the snow leopard, and George Shaler was one of them. The blue sheep were merely a cover, an excuse for the journey. The hope of glimpsing this near-mythic beast was the real reason they were going to the mountains. In Peter Matheson's moving account of this journey of the seeking heart, the elusive snow leopard becomes the symbol of ultimate reality. The presence of this great cat in the frozen mountains is what gives meaning to the journey and to the blue sheep themselves. The snow leopard lives in concealment seldom seen by human eye. For those of us who read Matheson's story through Christian eyes, the great cat has another name. He is the Lion of Judah who dwells in the smoke on the mountain. He speaks from the flickering flame of a burning bush and stands in the shadows off stage, keeping watch over his own. He broods over the waters of chaos. He is Wordsworth's presence that disturbs. He is Rudolf Otto's mysterium tremendum. He is theologian John Bailey's mediated immediacy. While we have never seen the snow leopard, we know he sees us. Peter Matheson writes that the snow leopard is there, that its frosty eyes watches from the mountain. That is enough. The presence who haunts us and pursues us all our days is forever there in our lives from summer nights under the glistening galaxy of childhood 
to the voice of autumn twilight. High in the frozen mountains, the great cat becomes for Matheson an unseen presence. And deep in the dark canyons, this presence lurks as he writes, something is listening. And I listen too. Who is it that intrudes here? Who is breathing? Who is it that spoke? Who is this ever-present I that is not me? At the heart of our faith, there is a thou who is not I. On the inward journey, said Meister Eckhart, the self meets a self that is not itself because it is God. The God of the scriptures is presented as a presence, sometimes experienced as intimate and close, and sometimes as elusive and hidden. The God who speaks and acts can also hide and retreat. Barbara Brown Taylor notes that in the Bible, we read that God had conversations with Abraham. God spoke to Moses as friend to friend. And yet as the Bible progresses, God retreats into whisper and silence. The last person to whom God was said to have been revealed was Samuel in the temple. The last public miracle recorded in the Hebrew Bible was the spectacle on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Eventually, the presence of God tabernacled in the temple in Jerusalem, but then the Babylonian captivity came. The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem leveled, the Hebrews led away in chains. Where then, they wondered, did their God now dwell? And when we come at last to Job, his long familiarity with an ever-present God has vanished. God has become silent and distant, and it is Job who asks, Can you, by searching, find God? And the implied answer is, No. God never responds to a direct search. And Job cries out, Oh, that I knew where I might find him. Presence had turned into absence and speech into silence. Martin Luther reflected on God as both hidden and revealed. It became one of the cornerstones of his theology. The complex relation between God and his people is such that sometimes God seems close and available, but when his people go into exile, they long for God and search for God, and God is not easily found. In the New Testament, this theology of presence continues. And Jesus himself becomes the one in whom God now tabernacles, so that Paul writes, In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In this Jesus, God momentarily steps out of the fog, and we get a brief glimpse of the Word made flesh. And yet, said Luther, in the cross, the divine presence again goes into eclipse, and at no point is God more revealed and yet more hidden than in the cross. 
So the great elusive cat of the frozen mountains takes its place as one of the symbols of the presence that sees but is not seen. The hidden snow leopard whose presence is felt even when no eye can gaze upon it. Blaise Pascal wrote, a religion which does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. Professor Belden Lane, who teaches at St. Louis University, says the metaphor of the mountain cat reminds us that while only a mere handful of people have seen the elusive snow leopard, it may well be hidden only yards away from passers-by. Even those who have seen it were people who had given up given up on ever getting a glimpse of this rare cat and who caught a brief surprise view when they were actually watching the blue sheep. Seeing the snow leopard was a byproduct of watching the sheep. The gift of mystery comes to us indirectly. Abraham Maslow observed that the people most likely to have what he called peak experiences are those who are able to engage in ordinary pursuits without being bored, such as watching the blue sheep. The God of Scripture is impenetrable mystery. We do not discover this God. We do not find God at the end of an argument in logic. God has to reveal himself before we see him. The first move is always God's. The truth about science may come through experimentation and the truth about philosophy through rationalization and the truth about history through documentation, but the truth about God comes only through revelation and mystery is the matrix of this revelation. And it's because God is mystery that the scriptures speak with two voices. Paradox becomes the Scripture's method. It tells us on the one hand that God is transcendent and on the other that God is imminent. It says we are saved only by our faith and yet we are to work out our faith with fear and trembling. It says God is a God of fierce wrath and a God of unbounded love. The Bible teaches that we must not love the world nor the things in the world, but that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Bible tells us that God is hidden and God has been revealed. It's only when we listen to both voices of Scripture that we hear what Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann calls Yahweh fully uttered. Yahweh fully uttered. Which returns us to our two prophets, our two texts for the morning. 
When we lean together these texts from two great prophets and juxtapose their messages, we hear Yahweh fully uttered. On the one hand, Isaiah, truly, thou art a God who hidest thyself. And on the other, Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. The late Bishop John A.T. Robinson of the Church of England wrote that truth is two-eyed. God intentionally made us bicameral with two hemispheres in our brain, two eyes in our head. How else could we ever get an accurate picture of the world? Scripture speaks with two voices, and without hearing both of them, how could we ever hope to glimpse the snow leopard? Walter Brueggemann says that what we have in the Bible are both Israel's core testimony to God and Israel's counter-testimony. The core testimony says God is present, God is intimate, God is available, but the counter-testimony says sometimes God is hidden, sometimes God is silent and mysterious. Samuel Terrian writes that God is the presence that eludes but does not delude. The elusive big cat of the frozen mountains must be stalked until he finds us. The artists are those chosen by God to pull back the veil so the rest of us can see seeing a transcendent dimension in a secular story or situation is where the Christian artist can help us. Our basic task as Christians is to stalk the snow leopard, but we need help. There is a great sacramental mystery to the world, says Belden Lane, where everything is a mask of something else. The artists help us remove the mask. They help mediate to us the immediacy of God's presence by focusing our attention on the mundane and the ordinary by calling us to notice the blue sheep. The artists open up for us the possibility of a glimpse of the snow leopard. Otherwise, the great cat is hidden in the landscape creviced in some rock, blended into the terrain, there in the shadows, off stage of our direct sight, God stands watching over his own, the snow leopard that reigns at the center of our imagination. Poet Wendell Berry's young daughter said to her father several years ago, I hope there's an animal somewhere that nobody has ever seen. And I hope nobody ever sees it. Wendell Berry responded by writing a poem that night to the unseeable animal. 
in which he says, I have walked deep in the woods in the early morning, sure that while I slept, your gaze passed over me. That we do not know you is your perfection and our hope. The darkness keeps us near you. The Christian artists are called by God to be eyes to our blindness and ears to our deafness. They are summoned to climb where others do not go and to look directly into the sun. They are called to descend into the darkness to hear the breathing presence that lurks there unthreateningly. They are the careful eyes that gaze upon the blue sheep, ever alert for a brief glimpse of the snow leopard. The imagery of the snow leopard necessarily engages the imagery of the sacred mountain. Peter Matheson's experience with the unseen presence of the great cat is set in his journey to the crystal mountain deep in the Himalayas. Mountains have numinous qualities for some people. Belden Lane says, mountain spirituality witnesses to that which seems irresponsible to people on the plains. Thomas Merton, the 20th century mystic said, there is another side of every mountain, the side that has never been turned into postcards. That is the only side worth seeing. And that is the side where the snow leopard wanders in search of something still unfound near the western summit, the house of God. Peter Matheson understands the significance of the holy mountain where lurks the great cat. And he writes movingly, the power of such a mountain is so great and yet so subtle that without compulsion, people are drawn to it from near and far and they will undergo untold hardships and privations in their inexplicable urge to approach and to worship the center of this sacred power. Peter Matheson completed his journey to the Crystal Mountain and back again without ever seeing the snow leopard. He did see leopard prints and at the end of his journey came to say, it is enough, it is enough just to know the snow leopard is there. I first met Professor Belden Lane nearly 20 years ago when he spoke one Sunday evening to a gathering at First Presbyterian Church here downtown when they used to meet just around the corner from us. Several of us went over that night at that time, he had just written a book on the landscapes of the sacred that had a chapter in it about his own experience with a great mountain in the American Northwest, 
a mountain which has been at the center of my own being now for more than 40 years. On his visit there, he said he had never seen the mountain itself. It was covered in fog and mist. It hid behind the clouds an invisible presence, and yet he writes, I remember that day as one of the most graced and gifted in my whole life. Early one brilliant morning, I met a young climber coming down the mountain as I was walking on the trail. He'd obviously spent the night up on the glaciers. When I asked him about it, he said, yes, I've been soaking up the good energy of the mountain. He continued his descent with the jaunty gait of a 20-something, and I wondered to myself whether he knew the name of that good energy. I saw Professor Lane again a year and a half ago, and I asked him if he had ever been back to the mountain. No, he said, but I still hope to go. I too hope he goes. I've been sending people to the mountain for years. I may have overdone it. They had two million visitors last year. <laughs> but I hope Professor Lane returns to the mountain until some morning it appears mysteriously to him with the sunrise, until it emerges from the fog and the mist and he is overwhelmed by its grandeur. I hope he goes back again to feel its icy blast against his face off the moaning glaciers. I hope he returns until it appears to him, until it speaks to him, returns until he sees the snow leopard. It's in going to the mountain that there is the possibility of glimpsing the great cat who lives there. It's our calling to stalk the snow leopard, but on every trip to the mountain, there is the fresh awareness, as Pascal said, I would never have sought thee hadst thou not already found me. Lo and behold, in searching for the snow leopard, I discover that I am being stalked down the nights and down the days, down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. I discover what Hemingway noted and what no one has ever explained, why the leopard wanders into the mountain heights in search of something. And I also discover that it is enough to know that he is there searching and to embrace the ancient paradox of being found rather than finding. Shall we pray? Gracious God, we thank you for finding us from day one so that even as our life tumbled into the world, we were already embraced, found. 
And we have spent our days in search of the one who has found us and known us and loved us from the beginning. And in the joyful discovery that you have loved us and met us and redeemed us through Jesus Christ our Lord, we live now within the nexus of a grace we experience daily but cannot yet comprehend. We pray now that because we have been loved, we might love. That because we have been sought, we too might search. That because we have been trusted, we might also trust. Because we have been the object of your devotion, let us give ourselves to one another in devotion and service for his sake, in his name. Amen. I recorded the opening, and then our golden retriever, Dutch, and I went on our walk. I re-listened to this sermon as we walked, and I found myself resonating deeply with the words of Isaiah. Surely you are a God who is hidden. That has seemed to be my experience of God over the past couple of years. Full disclosure, I've been in a season I affectionately call religious detox. Sometimes I jokingly introduce myself as a recovering Baptist minister. And as many people find in recovery, it's been a life-giving time, this detox. But it's also been a lonely time when it comes to God. I mean, church people aren't really comfortable with the questions that I'm asking, and my purposes aren't to convert any of them into my current location of spirit. I truly love that they are experiencing fulfillment in their respective communities of faith. But that's not where I've found my fulfillment of late. So I walked, and I heard about this stalking of God. These words I was hearing from Larry were resonating deeply. An image I had not considered during my detox was emerging in the noise and the fog of our crazy times. I was searching. I had been the entire time, probably the entirety of my professional life and ministry. But something here was moving me. I came to a crosswalk, and there he was, the crossing guard. Huge smile on his face, sending school children safely on their way with smiles on their faces. And as I removed one of my earbuds to say hi, he said, I've missed you two the last couple of days. Have a great day. And there it was. In a simple human interaction, I was seen, missed, 
found. Found. This crossing guard had probably had no idea what his small, kind greeting had accomplished. But on this day, at that very moment, I caught a fleeting glimpse of spirit, of God, the Christ. And I'm not ashamed to confess, there were some joyful tears in my eyes as I replaced my earbud and continued our walk. It's a wonderful thing to be found. So, as Larry prayed, because we have been loved, we might love. And because we have been sought, we too might search. And because we have been trusted, we might also trust. Because we have been the object of God's devotion. And let us give ourselves to one another in devotion and service. I hope you've all enjoyed this edition of A Thin Place Podcast. Please, if you have any suggestions or comments or ideas, send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. It's available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your social media platforms. I would love for more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. As always, special thanks to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing us to rediscover these sermons in this way on A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor. And until next time, grace and peace.